one thing that people don't realize when they hire an attorney is that rarely is it a set fee. So it's not like, you know, there's this lawsuit and it's going to cost X amount of money. Most lawyers bill by the hour. Welcome to the How I Money segment of the podcast, Rethinking How You Money 101. Hi, I am your host, Dom, and I will be interviewing people in this series about how their experiences with money have impacted who they are today. Today's guests are Tajin and Nori. Tajin is currently an attorney in Washington, D.C., and he likes to debate and discuss political theory, issues of race, religion, and post-neocolonialism. Nori is currently a healthcare attorney in DC and she focuses on expanding accessibility to affordable, culturally competent healthcare in the US. When they are not working as an attorney, together they are working to build up their company, Nunchi. Hi, my name is Tay. I'm an associate manager working in corporate compliance. I'm also an attorney on Bard in uh, DC. Oh, awesome. and I'm 30 years old. I forgot to mention that. Hi, I'm Nori and I am 29 years old and I am a healthcare attorney in DC. Okay, so the first question I have for you guys is, how would you describe your family's ways of handling finances while you were growing up? So growing up, my parents were very focused on not having debt. Uh, that's a very like cultural thing. Also, I my family is Indian Muslim, so that's a big part of our faith is just not carrying any debt. That was something that was definitely instilled to me at a young age. Yeah, so I'm actually adopted from Korea. My parents, I think, really emphasize to always make your minimum payments on on whatever debt that you're carrying and uh, never be in a position where you you wouldn't be able to make those payments, but, you know, be consistent in making those. So, you know, it always taught me to always save and put a little away for a rainy day. Do you feel like their relationship with money has affected how you handle your money today? Absolutely. For me, I'm very grateful that my parents took such a conservative approach to spending especially since I decided to get a doctorate, just because you take out so many loans for school and you don't realize later that, you know, you have to pay them off. Being raised on a philosophy of minimize your debt, I was really grateful for that because now that I'm a practicing attorney, I did make those choices to reduce my debt early on. And so I'm able to kind of reap the benefits now. Yeah, I think my my parents really instilled on me that idea of just being thrifty. You know, just be careful, like what you're spending money on and so forth. Um, that's paid off as an adult. <laughs> yeah, I feel like both of you guys, the qualities that they had really helped you in the future is what it sounded like. Yeah, and unfortunately, like I think because we're not taught about finances early on in school, like you really have to rely on your parents. And so I think a lot of people, you know, that's really their only source of knowledge in these matters. So I definitely feel grateful that my parents did you know, take the time to talk to me about it and make sure that I understood why their philosophy was the way it was. So I really wanted to go out of state for college. And my parents said, stay in state, (laughs) stay in state, get that good in-state tuition. You'll, you know, be so happy you did later. I really wanted to go to NYU. I had like these dreams of being in the big city, but now looking back on it, I got a great education and had a great time in college. And I'm grateful that I don't have, you know, the quarter million dollars of debt. <laughs> yeah, I, I was always interested in pursuing a law degree. Um, and so where I went to undergrad and the amount of uh, tuition, you know, that was definitely a variable that I considered going into under, undergrad so that, you know, I'd be able to go on and get a law degree. How many years is law after? I don't, I'm not exactly sure. 
So full-time is three years. Nowadays, there are some evening programs. So those would be four years and you're basically in school year round for four years. Altogether, is that eight years? Uh, like the- so undergrad, yeah. That is a lot of schooling. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, at this time of your life, what are your streams of income? So we're still pretty young. Things are simple for us right now. We, we have our salaries. We have small investment portfolio that we've been working on. Yeah, uh, I think that's it. Uh, we're also starting a digital media company as well. Yes. Now, if you want to talk about that one. <laughs> so we have our passion project that we've been working on, which is Ninchi, and it's a digital media company. And we have not monetized yet, so I don't know if we can call it a stream of income, but stream hopefully of one day for our passions. Yeah, I love our passions, but, but yeah. So our our small investment portfolio tends to be a little higher risk. Reflect our age to an extent, pretty tech heavy, and then on the side, I kind of dabble in cryptocurrencies. It's pretty high risk, pretty volatile as well. Um, but most of our investments are actually in stock. What made you guys want to start investing or creating your own company? Like how you said about that? How did you guys get started? Um, that's a really good question, actually. <laughs> Being in quarantine for like seven months, we got no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, for investing, I can speak to that, at least I, you know, we both, you know, read a lot of articles and talk to a couple of close people about, you know, ways to prepare for our future. And, and investing is definitely one thing that is discussed pretty frequently. It's always a give and take, right? Do you want to pay off all your debt right away and then invest or, you know, invest a little bit while you're paying off your debt? Yeah. So, I mean, there are different options. I think we've, you know, taking everything into consideration, have, you know, want to invest and get started on that. And I think there is a good amount of exposure to corporate finance and law school. And so personally, I took a corporate finance course. And so that kind of opened my eyes to, you know, how does the stock market work? How, like, what does it mean when a company goes public, right? And things like that, that I think otherwise I might not have really ever learned properly. And so I think that definitely played a factor too. I think we, you know, we feel like we have a, a lot to say and I, we also want to give a platform for other Asian Americans within our communities to speak, to have a, a place where they can relate to. Yeah, I think that's kind of where our, that passion project has, has sprung from. Did that start this year, right? Yeah, actually, we'd kind of been talking about wanting to do something for a long time, some sort of small business you know, on the side, because we both have a lot of interests, and we haven't really tapped into a lot of them just having studied for so long. But one thing that, you know, we do amongst ourselves at home a lot is we talk about politics and social issues. And I don't know, I would say we have pretty unique backgrounds in the sense that my family is from India, but I was born in England, my mom grew up in England, and then everyone came to the States. And so sometimes it feels like I have two homelands. And you know, like five cultures. <laughs> um, and for Tay, it's similar being a Korean adoptee. And so, you know, cultural and social and racial issues is something that we talk about a lot and we're interested in. And when we were younger, there just wasn't a lot out there for us to to read or listen to as a resource. And so we really wanted to create kind of a safe space for, you know, the kids that we were 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And also to, to like Tay said, create a platform for other people to, you know, say what they want to say and share their stories. And so hopefully that's, that's what it'll be. That sounds super cool. I know um, a lot of people that could definitely have used that. I was in the Filipino club at my school and there was a lot of people who they were from like predominantly white areas people that came from there, they would always talk about like how nice it was just to be able to be surrounded by other people that could share stories and 
understand their culture and just honestly not everyone there was Asian too but like we invited people of all different ethnicities and it was just like a safe place for them if that makes sense which I guess is what you're trying to create yeah definitely absolutely and you bring up a good point it's you know I had the benefit of that at my school too and a lot of my friends were Persian and Bengali and just you know from different places not necessarily Indian but it was such a comfort for me to not be exotic kid and and there are a lot of parts of the country where people probably don't get that and so having an online platform where you know you can meet people who are like you I think is so powerful definitely agree with that how would you describe your money habits today? Are you saving at all, investing, etc.? Our money habits today have certainly changed because of COVID. Uh, not eating out as often saves quite a bit of money. <laughs> I miss I miss the food game. I miss going to the restaurants. I think we both do. But yeah, we're definitely saving. We're definitely paying down student loans that we accumulated during law school, investing as well. You know, we have two stable jobs two white collar jobs. So yeah, there's some stability in that. Yeah, I think we try to take on the traditional kind of financial logic of always save, always invest, pay down your debt. Right now, the focus is a little more on pay down your debt. Hopefully in the future, it'll be a little more saving and investing. But I think we both agree it's important to to do all three because investing is planning for your future. Saving is so important in case an emergency happens. You know, you really need that rainy day fund. And then of course, paying off debt is super important, especially if like us, you do have a passion project or something that maybe one day you want to be able to invest more time into. And when we say paying off debt, we're not necessarily saying the minimums, right? A lot of student loans or home mortgages are on a 30-year fixed, you know, interest. Uh, I don't want to be six years old and finally free of debt. You know, we're trying to pay off debt quickly and we can take all that money, invest it or save it or go on fun trips, or maybe we can go to restaurants when that all opens (laughs) up. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I think that's actually a really good point. Like something that people don't talk about enough is that, you know, when you have student loan debt, you can pay the minimum and that's great, totally responsible thing to do. But if you can just pay a little bit more than the minimum over the life of the loan, you will save tens of thousands of dollars. On interest, right? Mm -hmm, On interest. If they can, that would be ideal. It can certainly be a a luxury to pay faster, right? You know, some things like education is a necessity in this world. We're Mm -hmm. fortunate to be able to pay a little more. Yes. And especially during this year where, you know, so many people have lost their jobs and are struggling financially. I definitely want to caveat that this advice is for the best case scenario. And it's definitely a privilege to be able to pay it on time above the minimum. Do you have any side hustles? Yeah, are yet to be monetized, but we're enjoying it regardless. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything in life that you choose to splurge on? If so, what and why? Yes, I would definitely say for us, the two things are travel pre-COVID and going out with friends to restaurants or just, you know, being out in the city. I think that's something that's a big part of our lives that definitely can add up. (laughs) I feel like that's not a bad thing though, because you're making connections. That is just a part of life. Like it's fun. Yeah. I mean, if there's value in it, right. I think if you're going to spend that extra money, it should be something that like really makes you happy. That's what makes us happy. Good food, good company. Exactly. I agree with that. The opposite end of that question is, is there anything that you wish you could cut back on your spending habits? (laughs) Probably eating out. (laughs) 
oh, I was going to say student loan debt, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, if we could just, you know, evaporate the student loan debt, that would be fun. That so much more money towards food and restaurants, yeah. I think we actually, if I were to be honest, I love the going out with our friends and doing stuff. But I think during the week when we're really busy with work and, you know, the day kind of just gets away with us, we have a bad habit of getting takeout. And I think that over time costs a lot of money. You know, the little Starbucks trips and pizza nights and things like that, that, I mean, it's fine. It's not like the, you know, the greatest dinner of your life. And so sometimes it's like, is it worth the cost? And <laughs> I think if we really thought about it, we would say no, but it's just a convenience thing. I feel like that happens to a lot of people. Like there was a week straight in college where I was just not feeling like cooking. So I just ate out for like a week with my roommates, but I definitely felt that in my bank account. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you don't feel good either, right? It's just like, yeah, no. the time. yeah, when you can make your own food, you know what's exactly inside of it. Like, you know, if you want to eat clean or however, but like whenever I eat takeout, like, yes, it's very delicious, but also I don't exactly know what's inside of it all the time. And I, it does make you feel a little, I don't know, like more slow sometimes because of all the fats that I'm eating, but yeah, we'll wake up the next morning and we'll just like chug water all morning. Cause it's just like, let me just detox my system. <laughs> when I was getting into eating healthy and eating clean, I, you know, you go to Whole Foods and you're like, oh my God, it's so expensive to shop here. Right. But I really learned how to eat the foods that are good for our bodies and buy those foods, prepare those foods without breaking the bank. And something that can be done at, you know, some of the more expensive groceries, if you know how to prepare food, if you know what you're shopping for. Did you guys usually make like a list for that? I created a Google spreadsheet and then had- This is the most lawyer thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> I had every Monday through Friday, cause on the weekends we're like seeing people and eating, you know, pizza with people. But Monday through Friday, I had all my entire menu out all the URLs, my links to all my recipes, figure out what we had in the house and have my grocery lists. Then I go to the cream market, wherever we need to go to get that food. And so when I'm at these stores, I walk in, I'm looking for the items on my list, as opposed to, you know, window shopping, if you will, at the deli or going down the chip aisle. You know, instead of doing that, I'm looking, being very specific about what I'm getting. And it reduced our, our grocery budget by quite a bit, by not getting the little extra things that catch our eye. I feel like that's a great tip for a lot of people that are going to be listening to the podcast, just because a lot of times when we do go to the grocery store, not everyone has a list. So they don't like set that up, like how you guys, you were talking about like on your Excel sheet, like that's pretty nice. I don't think I've ever heard of anyone going grocery shopping with an Excel sheet. That's what all my student loan debt got me. I'm just using spreadsheets now, so. <laughs> <laughs> what would be your ideal income and why? Um, oh, that's a really interesting question. I don't know if there's a like, number, but I would say my ideal salary would be something that gives me the freedom to live the life I want to live. For me, I think I really value my personal time. And so if I can, you know, pay my bills, reduce my debt, live the life I'm living right now, but with the option to, you know, take time off when I need to take time off. You know, we both have families overseas, for example. If I want to go see them, I want the flexibility to do that. And so I don't know if it's a number so much as a lifestyle. Yeah, I agree with that. I've spoken to some attorneys who admit that they don't know what to do with all the money. And, it, you know, being very candid with me, saying that, admitting that. And I agree with Nori that, you know, there's a certain lifestyle that I want, a certain way of living that I want, where 
you know, if I want to go to, you know, take a couple of weeks and travel Europe, I want to be in a position to be able to do that or be able to afford that, you know, with some family members, for instance. But beyond that, you know, I, I, I want us to be able to have a very robust rainy day fund, for instance, or a stock portfolio that is fun to play with, but also, you know, stable and will to retire whenever, whenever that day comes. It's hard to say what the exact number is. It would reflect a particular way of living. Yeah, I feel like most people that I've asked that question, uh, most of them, like, they'll come up with a random number, but at the end of whatever they're talking about, it all comes down to if they can have freedom to do what they want to do, like what their passions are and follow that, which is what you guys are explaining. Yeah, I think there have been a lot of studies on this topic, actually, that are really interesting. I remember once in law school, I was in a class and this girl went around the room. We were, you know, we were waiting for the professor to come. Everyone was a little early. And she was like, guys, did you know that after, I think it was $80,000 a year, studies show that, you know, people aren't really any happier, more fulfilled when their salary increases. And I'm sure, you know, we could make market adjustments for different cities around the country. But using that concept, she was like, you know, so what would you do knowing that if it wasn't law? And, you know, a lot of people were like, you know, I wanted to be a lawyer. That's my passion. But it was a really interesting question. I said I would open a coffee shop. And I think the really the root of that that question is, though, is, you know, what would you do if you could live the lifestyle you wanted? Right. I would make own my own garage and make custom street racing cars. The whole legality issue aside, that's what I would do. So that's what you really what you want is you want a salary <laughs> that lets you open your own shop. And play with cars, <laughs> make them go fast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Awesome. I like that for both of you guys. What about being an attorney interested you enough to make a career out of it? Yeah, so I, I should caveat that I am barred in DC, but I'm not a practicing attorney. Um, so if anyone is a member of the American Bar Association, I'm caveating now so I don't get in trouble. Um, so I, I'm in consulting right now. I work for a consulting firm and, you know, one day I may practice law, but I'm not technically I don't think I can technically consider myself an attorney under the ethical regulations that attorneys abide by. So I started after, uh, after college, I worked in Chicago in the inner city for some amazing attorneys who are doing amazing work. And I just love the, the passion that they had. There are so many amazing careers that impact our society for good, right? Like social workers do amazing work. Teachers do amazing work. I wanted to be in a position to be able to do that, to contribute from a legal standpoint, from a legal perspective? So for me, um, I actually am a former registered nurse. So um, when I graduated, I started working at a hospital in DC. This is really nerdy, deep regulatory stuff. So I'll try to be brief. But basically what happened was um, a lot of the Obamacare measures were passed and there were certain requirements for patient satisfaction and quality of care and, you know, think good things. But what would happen is when hospitals didn't meet those measures, they would lose certain amounts of federal funding. And it was meant to be an incentive to get hospitals to do better. And as a result, a lot of the hospitals across the country really suffered because, you know, they were trying to kind of comply with these new regulations and figure out the lay of the land. And they were experiencing growing pains like everyone does when a new change is implemented. But being a nurse in that hospital, I saw a lot of 
the internal issues that went along with that and just got really interested in, in public health and healthcare policy and just wanted to know more. Um, and so I studied for the LSAT and actually went to law school knowing I wanted to do healthcare. So now I work for a law firm that basically works to expand accessibility to affordable healthcare in low-income communities. Both of your storylines, it sounds like it came from a place where you wanted to help other people. And that's how you got into the field. Thanks. Yeah, I'd like to think so. Yeah. How does younger Tay and Nori and the version of yourselves today differ most in a financial perspective? Well, younger Tay didn't have a lot of money, so that's a big difference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say that's the primary thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I relied on, you know, obviously growing up, my first 18 years of life or 22, right, through college, relying a lot on my parents. That extra money that they send you during college is so clutch for Taco Bell nights and things like that. But yeah, so I, I, I think after that, I've, I've had to learn really how to implement the lessons that I saw and also grow some of my own good habits as it, as it relates to money. Yeah, I think for me, along the lines of what Tay said, you know, when you're younger, especially like when I was in college, like I would go home, you know, for summer break and winter break. And if I needed some extra money, you know, my parents were there. And so I didn't really think much about saving. And now as adults, you know, we're working, we bought a house this year. So now we have a mortgage, we really have to think like, okay, well, what if something happens? And, you know, one of us lose our job, or someone gets sick, how are we going to get past that? And so I think a lot of my focus has really shifted to saving. And I would recommend to anybody listening, when you get your first job, the first thing you should do is save up six months rent, six months bills, really, just so if anything happens, you know that you have six months to get it together. And I think that's definitely what grown up Nori has learned. Six months is the standard I heard for rainy day funds, just in case like if anything happened, like especially with COVID that helped a lot of people. As an attorney, what are some common misconceptions you find that people have about the costs and procedures of the cases you take on? So I think that one thing that people don't realize when they hire an attorney is that rarely is it a set so it's not like, you know, there's this lawsuit and it's going to cost X amount of money. Most lawyers bill by the hour. You know, oftentimes you can get an estimate for how something, how much something will cost. But often, you know, what you think is going to be, you know, a two hour legal research assignment is really, you know, a 10 hour project with some follow up. And so I think that that's something that people should keep in mind. Nowadays, there are a lot more you know, unique financial models that firms are using, but traditionally that's how most of them function. And so you always want to just account for that margin of error when you look at an estimate. The next question is, do you know any resources or programs that lower income people can go to for legal help? Yeah, there are a ton. The law here in the U.S. is practiced primarily at the state level. So it, it really varies depending on where you are. So if you're in Chicago, you're looking at Illinois resources primarily. You know, if you're in LA, you're looking at California resources. But one area that is actually pretty interesting is, uh, or one resource, excuse me, that's I think valuable are law schools themselves. They often provide what are called clinics that are typically uh, topic driven. So there will be a, a resource clinic for veterans trying to get assistance with their medical bills or a domestic violence clinic, for instance. 
and students, law students will be able to work on these cases on a pro bono free cost rate. If people wanted to go to those or like find out more information, did they just find it on the website or how did that usually work? Yeah, I, I guess if you're trying to find legal aid resources, you, you'd want to look at, you start with Google and, and look at what are the resources in your area. So if you're in Washington, D.C., for instance, this is kind of a unique area because there's Bethesda, Maryland to the north and to the west, you have Northern Virginia. It's all kind of clustered together, right? Um, but those are three different jurisdictions where like for me, being D.C. barred, I can't represent someone in Virginia, even though it's, you know, just across the bridge. So you'd want to look in the actual like legal jurisdiction that you're in and starting at Google, you know, I would, if I were in DC, I'd Google like DC legal aid for landlord tenant issues or something along those lines and see what you comes up. For example, if you're having issues with your landlord. And a lot of law firms, especially like, as Tay said, you know, because so many of the issues that people face are going to be dealt with at the local and state level. And so a lot of the times law firms will have relationships with each other. And so if you're not really sure where to look, a great way to go is just to, like Tay said, Google a law firm, ask them if they can help you out. And if they can't say, can you refer me to anyone who will? And likely they have a list of 20 other law firms and one of them probably will take you on pro bono. So it can be a lot of telephone, but <laughs> I think that there's a good network pretty much everywhere of lawyers who can help. The legal practice is very collegial. We I, I oftentimes will get people from DC saying, well, not often, but it, it happens where someone will come to me and say, hey, I have a traffic ticket in DC. Can you help me? And I'll tell them, well, I don't do criminal law, but I'd love to refer you to one of my good friends from law school who do, um, who, who would be able to assist. Yeah, it, you know, it, it builds my professional network. It helps, hopefully helps someone out who's reached out to me. So it's kind of a win-win. What's one piece of advice you would give to young people who are weary about becoming an attorney due to financial costs of the licenses or um, the degree? Yeah, so one thing that I would say is really, and I know I've harped on this a lot, but I think it's so important, is to really think about how to minimize your debt. Lawyers, you know, are considered one of the most well-compensated professions, and that's true, but it really depends on, you know, the type of law you practice and where you work. So law firms are characterized by, um, you know, at the top tier, what we call big law, which is the big national, international firms that, you know, suits. take on, yeah, suits, right? High profile clients. Um, and then you have kind of mid-level firms and small boutique firms. And, and the small firms can can pay really well depending on the type of law that they, you know, do. But it's very difficult to get into those big firms. I would say maybe like the top 10% of the top 50 law schools is even really eligible to, to enter those firms right out of law school. And so if you take on, you know, a quarter million dollars of debt thinking, I'm going to go into big law, that might not turn out for you. And then you're stuck with these loans. And, you know, depending on if you want to practice regionally. So I'll give an example of myself. So for law school, I only applied locally because I knew that I was going to be staying in the DC area you know, it didn't make sense for me to to go somewhere else to study unless it was going to be a fantastic school. The school that I went into offered me a pretty generous scholarship. So I was very lucky in that regard. And I was able to really lower my cost of living expenses by not having to relocate. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I am working at a fantastic firm now and things are great, but also I don't have this huge 
burden of debt that I might have had if I went elsewhere. And I think with, you know, COVID, we're seeing how volatile the economy can be. And so I would just say, you know, think, think in the long term, maybe it's better to go to a slightly lower ranked school and do really, really well there than to go to a top school where you might struggle and you might not, you know, get the top grades. And so it might be harder to break into the market you want to break into. But, you know, the debt's not going to go away if that happens. It's still going to be there. And it's worth planning for. For like the scholarships that you got for your school, how would you recommend for someone else who is looking for scholarships? Like, where would you recommend them to check for things like that? So there's a couple things. Um, A lot of undergraduate legal centers will have a lot of information on that, especially if you're going to a college that has a law school within it. They'll have a lot of resources for you. And then I would say, you know, if you go on to usnews.com and, you know, look at the law school rankings, they'll have statistics about the types of scholarships that they give and how often they give them. And so that's a great way to strategize. A lot of law school applications are free. So that's awesome because you can really just cast a really wide net with your applications and see what you end up with. A lot of law schools do um, like early admission scholarships. So if you apply, if you just literally apply two months earlier, you'll get a scholarship. Some do merit-based scholarships. Some do need-based scholarships. So I would just say, you know, talk to as many people as you can, cast your net really, really wide, think about where you want to practice. I think if you do that, you'll have a really good idea of what school is best for you. And also for those schools where the admission application is not free, there's certainly an opportunity for someone, uh, an applicant to contact that school and just ask for them to waive the fee. And it could be $100. So if you're applying to six schools, each with a $100 fee, you could save $600 just with a quick email. And you're also putting yourself on their radar, you know, saying, hey, like, I really want to apply to this uh, school. I love the school, whatever. But, you know, $100 is a little steep for me right now as, a, as an undergrad student, for instance. And they're like, oh, yeah, just enter this code, whatever, and that's it. And you just save yourself 100 here, 100 there. That can add up. And then you can spend that money on Taco Bell instead. So, no, I'm kidding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I actually have... Two other points that I think are really important. And one is a lot of the times, if you find a law firm in your area and you work for them, they'll help you with school. Um, A lot of law firms want to promote from within. They want somebody who understands their structure and who they can train, you know, while they're getting their law degree. So that's something really valuable, especially if you want to know if you already know what practice area you want to be in. So if you want to do criminal, you find a criminal law firm, you say, look, I'm a law student. I want to work for you. I'd love to, you know, stay on when I graduate. Like, can we, can we discuss? And I think a lot of law firms are really open to helping a student get through school, knowing that they're going to come back. And on that note, I would say if you're worried about the finances of going to law school, another great option is to look for a school that has an evening program so that you can work during the day and do classes at night. I did that for a part of law school, hated that for almost all of law school. And it's a great option. You still get that full law school experience. You just kind of, you know, you, you take one class less a semester and you get to really decrease the amount of loans that you have to take out. Oh, that's nice. I didn't know that was an option for other people. 
what learning resources do you recommend for young people who want to learn more about their rights and have other legal questions? There's a lot. I, so first I would say reading. Um, there's so many good books. The New Jim Crow is a really good book. Tennessee Codes are articles. Tennessee Codes, The Case for Reparations. The law, I, we walk through life and don't always realize just how much of life has been molded by the law. Uh, right. So there's Family Properties is another good book. Sorry, I'm starting to go all over the place. But yeah, books, articles. If you watch Netflix, there's the documentary 13 on the 13th Amendment. Brian Stevenson, I think, is in that amazing attorney. I think he's Harvard trained, I think, is Ken Burns, the Central Park Five and that a, a new uh, documentary about uh, those young men who were involved in that that incident. There's so many resources and podcasts. Kind of anywhere you look, there'll be a, a really good resource. I, I think the one thing that most people are familiar with the law from a criminal perspective, right? Law and order. You, when you think of an attorney, you're thinking uh, federal prosecutor, public defender, Bronx defenders, people like that. There's a whole other side, multiple other sides to the law, including compliance professionals, which is what I do. There are uh, transactional folks like primarily what Suits is engaged in, the, uh, the TV show. You know, they're making the big M&A, merge and acquisitions deals. They're not going to court. But they do sometimes in that, that show. I'm like, wow, they're not like criminal defense attorneys, but whole other side. Um, but yeah, sorry. So there's a ton of resources out there. To, and if you're asking specifically about rights, the ACLU has a lot of good resources for people who are going out there to protest. There are resources where you can learn more about the rights. If you find yourself in a position where you'd like to film a police officer interaction, a police interaction with another citizen, um, can you film? Can you film that? Do you have to put your camera down if you're asked to? So yeah, ACLU, I would definitely recommend for those types of legal rights as pertaining to protests or uh, civil disobedience. No, I think, I think there are so many great resources out there. I myself, as a healthcare lawyer, as someone who's been in the healthcare field for a decade, still seek out health law podcasts because they're a great way to stay up to date. Um, I think they're very like succinct. And so you, what you might spend 10 hours reading in a book, you can get in an hour. And so I would just say, really just get out there and search and seek what you're interested in. Another thing I would say is, go to law school. We need more lawyers. We need diversity of thought in our field. It's dominated by an older generation that has a knowledge of wealth, but can't always see the world from the lens of the youth. And, and I think it's so important to have those voices heard. So I would just say, if you're a young person and you have even the tiniest bit of interest in, in politics and the law, look into it. Just give it a try meet some lawyers, do some research. I think I speak for both of us when I say we'd love to see more young people doing the law school thing. Yeah, definitely. And, and there are even programs, you know, uh, we have a friend who got her MBA, JD, uh, dual degree. They're MPH, JDs, um, master's in public health, plus a law degree that you can earn simultaneously, master's in public policy and JD, simultaneously those are very popular there's so many resources out there it, it's exciting it's an exciting time I, I hope to see the law begin to mold us more young people into the profession people who are motivated to make a change make an impact for good 
My final question that I have for you guys is a food for thought question. So it's just a fun hypothetical question. If the world was frozen for 30 seconds just to listen to you, what would you say? And this doesn't have to relate to money or finance or anything like that. Just whatever you want to say for 30 seconds. Uh, currently, I would say go vote and wear a mask. Yeah, that would definitely be, I would say those things. And knowing I had 25 seconds left, I would say that I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Calling I, me out. <laughs> yeah, I, I, look, this is a, a really crazy, hard, difficult, interesting time in history right now. I love seeing young people who are getting engaged, who are active, whether it's on social media alone or not, right? I think we sometimes have a tendency to make fun of like the the online warriors, the keyboard warriors, but people are getting engaged. People are starting to listen and to hear and to speak out, specifically young people. And I, I love to see that. And I think the one thing I would say specifically to young people would be to have fun in life, have fun right now, because as you get older, you begin to realize that you can make a difference. You can still change the world as an adult. You just are also confronted with the harsh realities of how much work that will be. Whether it's environmental justice, whether it's justice in the streets, wh wherever it may be, keeping corporations accountable, it's really hard and it's doable and it needs to get done. I love seeing the energy that the young, the, I'm not that old, but the young people know, younger- we're talking like we're like <laughs> oh, in our yes, 80s uh, over here. Yeah, no. But yeah, I mean, people who are younger than me, I'm particularly, it's great to see how energetic and engaged there. And I, I, it's kind of like a have fun, but also keep doing what you're doing. Keep being engaged because um, we need it. We need that energy. Yeah. Us stodgy old folks over here, you know, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I love that. And I would just say like, don't lose heart, you know, take breaks when you need to, but work hard. Like always tell yourself, you know, like, why not me? Someone has to be first. Why not? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We're Someone's got to do it. Yeah, Someone's got to jump yeah. in. Why not you? That's a perfect way to end the podcast for today. Thank you guys so much for being on it. Do you guys have any way for listeners to follow you on social media to keep up with future projects or anything like that? Yes, absolutely. Um, we would love for you guys to follow us. We are at www.nunchi.com. <laughs> That's N-O-O-N-C-H-I. Um, we're also on Twitter and Instagram at NunchiCo. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Follow us. Hey, it's Dom again. I just want to say thank you for listening to my podcast. Again, to reiterate, this is a series that I'm trying to make. It's called How I Money. It's a segment on this podcast, Rethinking How You Money 101, where I am trying to find people to interview. It honestly can be anyone and talk about their experiences with money and how that has impacted who they are today. If you know anyone that is interested in being interviewed for my podcast, send me an email at rethinkinghowyoumoney101 at gmail.com, okay? Thanks for tuning in and remember to always be smart with your money. See you guys next time.